Hello, I'm David Moskrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. The United States of America is a polarized country marked by toxic partisan politics. The state of American politics comes from somewhere, and it might have been otherwise. It has been shaped by powerful interests, technologies, and contingent forces. One of those, one of the most important, is cable television. A new book traces the history of cable television and the changing political and cultural landscape in the United States. In the background of the book looms an absolute bruiser of a question. Did cable television break America? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Catherine Kramer Brownell, an assistant professor of history in the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue University and the author of 24-7 Politics. Cable Television and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. Let's start with an important distinction that is central to not just the book, but what has become of the United States and and what may be becoming of Canada. What's the difference between broadcast television and cable television? And if you can get into a little bit about the difference between broadcasting and narrowcasting as well, I think that would help us understand what we're getting into here. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for having me. And this is a really important question because there's a technological difference between broadcasting and cable. But then what I really trace in the book is the political difference uh, that emerges. So the technology. um, Cable initially emerges as a technology to just expand broadcasting. So broadcasting signals would come out of stations initially in big cities like New York or Chicago. And so it's these rural towns and 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 even some suburbs uh, that that cannot access these broadcasting signals. And so entrepreneurs decided that what if they went to a mountaintop um, and they got the signal or the top of a hotel and they got the signal and then relayed it to their community that couldn't access it otherwise via a wire. And so early cable systems were called CATV, which is really community television. Uh, systems. And and it was really all about expanding the reach of broadcasting. And so for the first decade, decade and a half of cable television's existence, it was merely to supplement broadcasting, uh, to, to expand its reach. That ultimately changes in the 1960s as there's a growing dissatisfaction with broadcasting and the limits of it. At the time, it's a highly regulated industry that allows the three networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS, to dominate the information that people are getting. And and this is a very powerful consensus uh, creating um, a medium that is trying to find that lowest common denominator to create a shared culture. But of course, it's exclusionary. It's ideologically exclusionary. It's uh, really centering the viewpoints and perspectives of elite white men. Um, and, and many people across the political spectrum are unhappy with the limits of broadcasting. And so cable offers an opportunity because it can it doesn't just have a couple channels that it can offer. In fact, it can maybe even deliver up to 13. And that idea of diversity of programming becomes so central for cable to say, hey, we can do something different from broadcasting and bring some of that programming that people are craving, but they're not getting. Right. So you mentioned the the three big broadcasters in the book. You mentioned the fact, an important fact that it's an oligopoly uh, and cable then disrupts the the oligopoly. Uh, now, if we were to say, okay, you know, 
there's there is a political no longer a technical technological necessarily distinction between the two um can you give us some examples of what we would think of then as as cable sites and or, or outlets and what we would think of now as broadcast outlets either politically or or otherwise so one of the key things that becomes central to the cable industry's expansion is showing that it can deliver programming that's different from network broadcasting. And so cable also initially is very highly regulated in the 1960s so that it cannot compete with broadcasting in some of the top television markets. Um, and so it's trying to say that we need deregulation for the industry so that we can kind of uh, deliver to American consumers what they're not getting. And so creating unique programming uh, that really introduces that term narrow casting, right? It's not something that's appealing to the lowest common denominator, but appealing to a very select group uh, that um, very niche programming that becomes cable television's calling card. And why they're, they're, they're pointing to if we deregulate, we can develop these different types of programming that just simply cannot uh, succeed in the broadcasting era because they don't have that, that wide audience. But they can succeed on, on the cable dial because the cost is much lower. So things like MTV, ESPN, uh, C-SPAN is actually a really important uh, cable program that emerges out of the desire of the house to televise their operations and broadcasting simply can't find a way uh, to do it, to make that a viable um, economic model. And so cable comes in and says, what if we do it? What if we pay for these costs and, uh, and deliver this original programming to the cable dial? Yeah, you opened the book with a lobbyist workshop in 1984. It's aimed at selling cable technology uh, to Washington insiders. And you're right, and, and this is a quote, the premise was simple, more choice, information, and access to direct conversations between candidates and the public would emerge and inform voters like never before. So <laughs> it's a pretty compelling sales pitch, and it sounds quite nice. Um, did the folks selling that at the time believe it? No, that's a great question. I I think some people did. Right. So the, the premise behind C-SPAN is certainly that bringing transparency to the um, to the to Congress would and it would allow voters or, and viewers to be more informed. And so I think some people thought, really did believe that expanding access, uh, bringing this new type of programming, bringing diversity on the dial would be good for democracy. But it was always tied to the business of television. Mm -hmm. Even C-SPAN was about trying to, sure, bring transparency, but how did Brian Lamb ultimately sell C-SPAN to cable companies to get them to fund it? They said, if you want to be taken seriously in Washington, uh, you need to do public affairs. That's how the networks became powerful, because when you're doing public affairs television, you're tapping into that desire by elected officials to be seen. Which uh, and, and to be on television and, and to create this media persona. And so this growing demand for TV access became a really great way to kind of ingratiate the cable industry with uh, government officials and government institutions in a way that made them further rely on cable and then want to expand it, right? So if you're a legislator and you're on C-SPAN, you want C-SPAN to expand. That means you want cable television to expand to get the more and more viewers. And so 
there really is this, this political relationship uh, that develops that's good business and good politics for the industry by creating these connections and these relationships with elected officials. Does the public really benefit as consumers? Certainly. Um, as citizens, there's, again, more access to information, but there's more access to diversion as well. Yeah, and I, I want to get into that a little bit later. Right now, I want to chase down the political relationship angle a little bit. Uh, you write about Richard Nixon in the book and how Nixon saw the emergence of cable television as an opportunity to kind of stick it to the elites who who gatekept him or who are opposed to him. You might say stick it to his enemies, maybe some folks on his infamous list. Uh, I'm curious about you know, because we often think of Nixon and think of, well, you know, he was undone because he wasn't as media savvy as the Kennedy folks. But th there's a far more to Richard Nixon than that. Obviously, he understood the media fairly well. Um, you know, to what extent is he bound up in the in the emergence and development of cable? He's central to the story. And it really, it's the Nixon story that brought me to the research uh, because I wrote in my first book about Nixon's struggles with television. And in my first book, I, I kind of talk about that debacle of 1960 and, and how he was really critical of Kennedy's media strategy, his celebrity strategy. But then in the wake of the election, he blamed TV for why he lost. And so then he studies what Kennedy does. He studies what Reagan does. He becomes obsessed with controlling his TV image. Um, even throughout the whole Watergate investigation, he sees that all of the PR, right, the, the right spin will take care of that. And so he really sees TV as central to political power. And that's where I end my first book. And so when I was thinking about the second book about cable television, I saw a couple lines in some of the scholarship out there about how cable started to floor or take on a new direction. Cable deregulation really began in the Nixon administration. And that was it. And I knew as someone that studied Nixon and that knew Nixon's obsession with TV that there had to be more to that story. So I started digging around and I found that, you know, again, he sees TV as central to power. He sees the networks as undermining him, um, really out to, uh, he sees them being biased and out to get him. And then cable becomes this way that he thinks, oh, he can target. Uh, the networks, because he sees, you know, the argument why, why, why cable was so highly regulated is because people believed that broadcasters needed to be, to have that oligopoly in order to survive, um, to have that broad audience. And the notion was, what if cable comes in and splinters off their audience, then can broadcasting survive? And broadcasting at this time is free, if you will. You know, people don't have to pay for it. Um, they pay with their time, of course, with advertisements. Uh, but uh, but this notion that cable will come in and you're paying for TV and then that would really destroy the broadcasting regime. That's why cable was so highly regulated. And so Nixon thought, let's deregulate cable because I want to destroy the broadcasting mm -hmm. regime. And, and I, I want to get into, you know, once it does emerge, the social, political, cultural impact. So you write about how media shapes American culture and politics, and that's not just a broadcasting or cable phenomenon that goes all the way back to the founding of, of the Republic. It's an old story. Um, so there, there's obviously a, a trade-off. Cable introduces diversity and introduces other things as well. Uh, how did it then shape American political discourse in the subsequent, or in rather the, the last, say, like 
three decades. And I want to dig into Fox and the Republican Party in a minute. But first, I want to kind of get at the broader macro shaping that cable has done. Because if you look at the state of American partisan identity and polarization and cultural polarization and the emergence of the culture wars stoked very deliberately by a number of primarily right-wing American figures from the 60s, 70s onwards, um, how did cable play a role in, in, in generating or amplifying these cultural and political phenomena? So cable becomes a way for those who are outside of power, who are more extremist in their views, uh, to, to garner national media attention and to build a following. And a, a great example of this is someone like Newt Gingrich, who is on, he's a minority of the minority party in the House in the, uh, the late 70s and into the 1980s. And he sees cable as, well, it's not a huge audience, but what if it's even just 200,000 or 500,000 people from across the country? So he's able to use C-SPAN not to just speak to his own constituents, but to build a national following. And how does he do that? He does it by doing things that shock and awe and that generate ratings. And so I think it's this, this pandering to ratings uh, that, uh, and that cable allows ratings to be defined differently. It's again about uh, getting loyal subscribers rather than a mass audience. And the way to build loyalty cable businesses found um, is by, you know, doing things that are unconventional, um, that are different, that are going to draw people in. And so Gingrich applies this to politics. And so he goes on C-SPAN, he goes on these rants, attacking his enemies very, very boldly, questioning their integrity, questioning their Americanism and their patriotism. And he's doing it, it looks like he's speaking to the entire chamber. And he dares them to come out and says, you know, I, I you know, push back on this. I dare you to. And they aren't there because the chamber is empty. It's in the after hours. It's a special orders. And at first the camera wasn't scanning the chamber. So it just looked like he, you know, no one would, would call, call out uh, uh, um, Gingrich when he's making these statements. But in fact, again, no one's there. And so it's a great example of how the manipulation of the cable dial uh, really allows a, a different type of politics that sells well that can generate ratings um, and generate a loyal following uh, becomes so central to American politics. Well, it sounds awfully familiar. Uh, and I was going to ask this later, but I think it's more appropriate to ask it now. It, it sounds an awful lot like a, the social, the contemporary social media strategy that has emerged for a lot of people. There's a whole industry built around going on Twitter or going on Twitch, or going on YouTube, or going on Threads, or Blue Sky, or Bastardon, or wherever it might be, and narrow casting to what is ultimately a fairly large but not mass audience, mm -hmm. and generating all kinds of of political capital and, and incidentally cash. Um, is this? You know, does, it looks to me like the the strategy was effectively lifted from what you're describing and just transposed onto social media. Is it the same thing effectively? I think. So. And I think that's why, you know, there's a lot of discussion about what's the future of cable television with more and more subscribers kind of cutting the cord, right, and ending their cable subscriptions and in just individually subscribing to these um, different channels and different networks and 
and going on um, and maybe shifting away from TV altogether with, you know, you, some of these social media outlooks or outlets. But I, I argue in the book that it's the values that cable fundamentally introduced that have persisted and shaped the internet and social media as it has unfolded. And that is, again, narrow casting, the idea of building our very loyal audience, not, not large, as you mentioned, but very loyal, um, you know, pandering to, to that audience uh, with things that are going to get people emotional. Um, and a lot of that is really stoking that outrage that tends to, that tends to go viral. It gets people emotions heated uh, about some of these issues. It's not necessarily rooted in informing people. It's rooted in and entertaining them. And I think that's something that cable introduced in terms of our political media and political conversations that has become so intensified um, on social media. What do you make of The Daily Show? I mean, I, I, I was thinking about this when you were just talking right now. And, uh, you know, the, the Daily Show is held up on by, by progressives, by liberals as a kind of bulwark against the rise of Tucker Carlson and the Fox News cable machine. Uh, you know, as a form of infotainment, uh, but it is also sort of the the a similar model to to the analog on the right, is it not? It is, and I think that you know, John Stewart would frequently, I know, in the early two thousands, uh, he you know would go on CNN and Crossfire, and and he would go on these shows, and he would be so critical because they were presenting news. Uh, but it was actually entertainment. Uh, it was entertainment disguised as news. And he argued that what The Daily Show did is that it was, it didn't, it didn't pretend that it wasn't entertainment. It, it went, you know, double down. We are entertaining, but we're also kind of doing this as a way to kind of break through um, all of the, the noise and the clamor of cable news. And I think that there, there are differences. I think one of the biggest challenges with cable news is that um, you know, you've got the introduction of CNN in 1980, and that's really cable news um, up until 1996, when you have competitors with MSNBC and Fox that are introduced. And, and in the aftermath of this, there actually is a discussion in the media about how each of these different news outlets would develop their own identity and their own brand. And so ultimately, they continue to do that, to, to really um, double down on how are we going to get people to tune in and how are we going to entertain them, not necessarily inform them with our particular brand of entertainment? Uh, but I think one of the biggest differences between The Daily Show and the news channels is that that notion of the news um, persists with cable news, even though it, uh, that, that they're informing the broader public, um, that, uh, that they're playing the central role in elections and how people are understanding politics. Uh, but they actually are just entertaining them. So there's this older notion of the news that persists, even though it's become more entertainment driven. Mm -hmm. Yeah, reading your book, I was thinking of of Firing Line, uh, which uh, of you know, which I've spent quite a bit of time watching back episodes of, and watching Firing Line is is fascinating because it never had a big audience, right? And it struggled to survive and it, it, and it had a massive and outsized impact on American cultural discourse because of William F. Buckley. But the quality of the conversations is so high. Even if, even if you despise Buckley and disagree with him, um, and I can't find many instances in which I agree with him. I, I watched an episode with him and Barry Goldwater 
And you get a very different sense of who Barry Goldwater is listening to that than, than I think we have otherwise had. Um, but Buckley would also have, you know, Norman Mailer uh, or, or other leftists on to discuss. And the, the quality was was quite high. But even then, it wasn't like people were really rushing to tune in. So it seems that even when we think of, well, you know, back in the day, people cared about better discourse. The counterpoint to that is the numbers don't really bear that out. So I wonder <laughs> if, if to what degree Cable was just waiting to pick up on people's latent desire just to be entertained and not to have to really slog through a deep conversation, right? Uh-huh. Like how much of this is, so I guess the question is, how much of the of, of the of what has come is the emergence, is cable changing people? And how much of it is just reflecting who people really are at their base level? That's such a great question. Um, and I think it, it speaks to, there are a couple of things that I think are at play. One is that, you know, the network news programs in the 1960s had a massive audience, but they were only 22 minutes long once you took into account commercials. So the amount of information people are getting is so limited. Um, And yes, they were profitable, but the reason that they weren't longer is because what was more profitable are those entertainment shows. Um, And so... So I think that there is, you know, th- that kind of speaks to to that that question that they were, there, th- the network executives believe that there is a limited appetite for new cable upends, right? You know, this is one thing that Ted Turner does introduce is he thinks, what if we had nonstop news? What is there an appetite there for news that's around the clock? Um, and he explores that as a business strategy. And so, uh, so I think, you know, and he shows that you can make money um, off of the news. Um, uh, you make a lot of it. Um, and so he ultimately does show that there is the demand for it. But I, one thing, I'm going to go back to your point about firing line. I think the, the really interesting and important thing about firing line, too, in terms of it's an hour-long conversation, it's a substantial conversation, it's on public television. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that one of the things with cable is that it develops as, a privatized industry that's, you know, a deregulated media industry in which the businesses are overwhelmingly making these decisions about the news. And so political media, when it can become profitable, i.e. entertaining, um, is, is something that they're they're investing in rather than other programs like Firing Line. And there's a symbiotic relationship between the executives then and, and politicians, you know, each of whom gets something out of the relationship. And I want to pull a particular example out because I want to talk about Fox News and the Republican Party. And you talk about how they maybe fuse is the wrong word, but how they end up feeding off one another and cooperating in many ways um, and, and become quite close. How, how does that emerge? So it really emerges, I think, the the roots of this kind of very symbiotic uh, relationship between television executives and politicians are there in the 1960s, right? This is what gives broadcasting their power. Uh, they're, they're good friends with people in the, the Kennedy administration and the Johnson administration, not so much Nixon. And so this is why Nixon, you know, really does kind of change that trajectory because he's looking for other options. Um, and the cable is the cable industry um, insiders. They constantly are talking about that broadcasters' power hinged on the fact that they helped 
re-election of elected officials. And so they they were constantly searching for ways that they too could basically provide a different service for elected officials. And you see this very clearly, obviously, with the relationship between Fox and the Republican Party. Uh, but that is really an outgrowth of over de or several decades of the cable industry trying to create these relationships with elected officials. Mm -hmm. And and you know to what degree is is that true of the Democratic Party as well? Uh, you know, people I I guess say, well, you know, MSNBC is the Democratic Party and Fox is the Republican Party, but that doesn't seem like exactly the same thing. No, and that that that, that really comes into the twenty first century. Um, that that different those different identities that that develop, especially with MSNBC. Um, initially, when MSNBC uh, uh, launched, it wanted its identity to be kind of youth, um, emphasizing the internet and kind of engaging with um, the internet, um, getting people to respond to stories uh, by going online, because of course it was a venture between Microsoft and NBC. Um, and so it really was emphasized how it was cutting edge because it was tech savvy um, and, and really focused on younger audiences. Uh, one of the really interesting relationships that I have found with the Democratic Party and cable um, uh, companies that have developed is the relationship between Bill Clinton and MTV. Um, it, MTV gets involved in 1992 uh, for the first time, and MTV News had just launched several years earlier, and they think, wow, it'll make us more relevant to be involved in the 92 election. And not a lot of people took MTV seriously, but Bill Clinton did. He and he did so because he was desperate. Uh, mm -hmm. He was floundering in the polls in June of 1992, and he was willing to try anything. Um, and he went on MTV, and he was terrific. He connected with people, and it really it met kind of his strengths in terms of his ability to connect with individuals. Um, in that talk show format, but it allows him to dominate that conversation. And he's, there's not a lot of pushback from him. He's, he is controlling the conversation for an hour, right? So it's, it's a long conversation, but Bill Clinton is firmly in control of how people are consuming and understanding the events of the campaign and some of the controversies of the campaign. And I think it's also telling that MTV is getting involved in this because they see the money or the, the business potential. They think, wow, if our viewers never change the channel and they watch our music videos and then they can get their dose of politics by keep, uh, watching MTV news, they're going to become more loyal viewers. So it's good business. It's also good because it shows um, MTV and the cable industry that they're contributing to democracy um, at a time when cable was being re-regulated because they had spiked up the prices so high after being deregulated in 1984. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to turn to, you know, where we find ourselves and, and where things might be going. And first, I want to try to grapple with the trade-offs between the diversity that cable has en that en enabled and continues to enable uh, to some extent, and the narrow casting sort of ideologically and profit-driven uh, pathologies that emerged because often people say, you know, well, back in the day, everything was far, you know, the, the, we had the networks and everything was civilized and everything was contained, everything, but you know, you've got an oligopoly of white, straight, ostensibly straight men who broadly think the same. 
in the 1950s, the American Political Science Association comes out and says, America has a crisis. We aren't polarized enough. <laughs> Be careful what you <laughs> wish for. Uh, you know, Republicans and liberals or and, and Democrats are both liberals. This is part of the Buckley Project, right, to drive that apart, the Goldwater Project, to drive that apart. But there is an argument to be made for for pluralism and diversity of identity and, and ideology. That's non-toxic varieties, at least. And, and cable enables this. But then we see what happens when it gets well, picked up by cynical folks um, and ideologues and driven to extremes. So how do we how do we grapple with those trade-offs? You know, it's one of those things I think a lot about as a historian, because I don't want to try to romanticize the time when everyone got along, everyone was informed, and that has never been the case. I think there's always been this lamenting over civic knowledge and civic participation. Um, there's uh, been this effort, especially over the, over the course of the 20th century, is you have these new tools, radio, motion pictures, and then television, to connect with the mass public. Uh, but uh, whose voices are included and whose voices are excluded? Um, and, and again, it really reinforces certain gendered and racial hierarchies and inequalities. And so I think that's really important to know, that kind of breaking down the gatekeeping of network television has allowed for a more diverse uh, media landscape to emerge. But I think one of the key lessons I, I hope that people would get from my book is that the way the decisions that went into this um, were that were hinged on, or were hinging on deregulation, that the marketplace can deliver this, that you know having uh, just consumer choice will deliver for democracy, that we don't need to have any regulations or expectations in terms of the behavior, the, the civic behavior of, of private businesses. We just have to let the marketplace decide. And that trajectory towards for cable television is made because of very distinctive policies uh, to choose deregulation over other options that emerge as, whether it was, you know, cable being a common carrier, right? That, that so uh, more kind of how the internet uh, emerges, uh, um, whether it's uh, being publicly funded, like you know, public funded or publicly funded television. There are a lot of other options for how cable could develop. And as it emerges, it becomes tied to the marketplace. And I think that what we see today is a cultural consequence of deregulation. Yeah, I mean, I, it, so it could have been otherwise, right? There was, I mean, I wondered to what, I mean, I mean, I know historians don't love these types of questions, but I'm, I'm going to try. You know, imagining a counterfactual where cable doesn't become deregulated and doesn't take the path that it has taken and isn't taken up by cynical politicians um, to try to to fuel ideological and, and partisan identity uh, divisions and culture wars. Uh, do you get the contemporary American landscape that you have? Do you, do you get Donald Trump? Because it's hard to imagine Donald Trump winning becoming a president in a, a broadcast era, for instance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I do. The, the, the celebrity of Donald Trump is very much a cable celebrity. It's, it's a reality TV type, type of celebrity where it's emphasized, you know, he emphasized his own brand, right? It's shock and awe with kind of how he operated. And this is a style of programming that worked well on the cable dial. Mm -hmm. um, it was cheap and it was effective. Um, and, and I think those are that, that expectations with those cultural changes 
certainly paved the way uh, for Trump is what I argue in the broader book. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I as a historian, I can never answer those counterfactuals, but I think it's important uh, because there, I, I believe in contingency. I do believe that, you know, media development, I've seen it time and time again as a historian. When you look at debates over the media, it could go a variety of different ways. There are people pushing for different policies, different approaches to developing the media. And, and it's really significant that Lyndon Johnson uh, has, who his wife is a broadcaster. Uh, you know, he's got these deep connections with the broadcasting industry. But he has this committee developed to think about the future of communications policy. And it develops, it has a very robust idea of this notion of the new deal for the information age, that government has a role to play um, in cable television's expansion. And ultimately, that report comes out in December of 1968, after he lost the election to Richard Nixon, the implementations of any changes in communications policy were left to Richard Nixon. That matters. You know, the, the fact that it's Nixon shaping communications policy moving forward with his baggage and his biases, uh, that certainly matters. So I think, you know, media and television, those are political institutions that are developed because of political choices. And speaking of political choices, looking at the contemporary landscape shaped as it was so much by cable and now shaped by, among other things, I mean, the Internet. Uh, what is based on on historical precedent in accepting contingency? What do you think the future ends up looking like? You know, insofar as partisan identity, toxicity, and polarization uh, looks like. Because looking at it as a you know, I trained as a as a political scientist. That's not what I do anymore, except for sometimes for fun. <laughs> but but you can't help but continue to think like that. And reading folks like you know Larry Bartels and that and and books like Unequal Democracy and and a number of reading this book too, it, it's hard to then think that this is ever going to become reversible or or to that that the sort of toxic uh, partisanship and the identity based partisanship that is fueled. And, and enabled in part by narrow casting, both in television and the internet, can be undone. I, I just can't, but that could be a lack of, of imagination on my part. So I'm, I'm straining to think how we might imagine a future where it doesn't look like that. Uh -huh. Am I missing something? No, it, it's a great question. And it's something I think about a lot. And I, I think about it not just as a scholar, but as a teacher, um, I, when I'm approaching studying political history and having these debates in my, in my classroom. And one of the things that does make me hopeful uh, is that my, my students are really thinking about how they're consuming media. They're thinking about their sources. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges is that we have this plethora um of 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 access to information and to all of these different outlets and um and different sources so how do we navigate that how do we you know fight through the flood we have so much information at our fingertips um it's overwhelming and i find that my students are really actively thinking about and talking about um what the sources and biases and sources they're they're eager to have conversations um, across the political dial. They, you know, I have students of all political stripes in my classes, and 
they want to they want to talk with one another and they want to do so in ways that are productive. And so what I see in my classroom when we have these discussions, very of, of culture war issues of you know things that play so divisively on the media, um, there's not that same divisiveness um, and that rancor um, in my classrooms. And I, I think that that gives me hope that you know you've got a newer generation that is you know growing up with social media, but also more aware of how it works. And and the manipula the constant manipulation of information that they can see through that as well. Yeah, I want to close out on this. I mean, I I studied democratic deliberation when I was was doing my research and, and wrote a, a book on on political decision making. And one of the things that I find was, and many people find, is that um, context matters. Right, the the context in which we're having these discussions and making these decisions matters a great deal. If you're in a classroom with a professor who can act as a mediator or who can act as a, as a a guide, you get a very, very different conversation than you get on, you know, uh, on CNN or, or on Fox or on Twitter, right? And, you know, people like me argue in favor of citizens assemblies for, for certain political decisions, because when you put ordinary folks together in these circumstances, they actually produce really, really good political decisions uh, that are different than, say, legislator, legislatures would produce with different strategic and uh, other incentives, right? Uh, in the same way that in Canada, at least, to a certain extent, the, you know, parliamentary committees work very different uh, than the legislature as a whole. <laughs> Okay. Often, often better, and I imagine to some extent that's true of Congress as well, uh, or or even the Senate, which seems to work better than than the House in in many cases. Um, can, do you think that we can build institutions, technological institutions, because that's what cable is, and it's a, it's a technological institution? Do you think we can build these things? in this century that will facilitate better conversations and decision-making? That's a great question. I, I think we can, <laughs> because again, contingency matters and political choices uh, matter about whether or not we accept certain structures as acceptable or not. And so I, I do think that there's always a choice at hand. Um, and And I think that the the cable television industry is in is at a moment of flux, right? It's it's certainly uh, the the business um uh, of cable is in a moment of change of of crisis, you know, in some capacities. So much of the programming, cable news, which was thriving as a business under Trump, is now kind of uh, spiraling. Uh, whether you've seen with Fox and the Dominion lawsuit or CNN and some of the changes there, and so I think that it is we're at a moment uh, to ask ourselves these questions and to think about and perhaps envision different structures, different uses of TV uh, and cable television and social media um, to address some of these uh, these challenges moving forward. Well, that brings us to time. I, I could talk about this all day. Uh, I could talk about this 24 uh, seven, <laughs> but, but, uh, but alas, I have, I have arguments with strangers on the internet to get to. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. This was fantastic. And I very much appreciate it. 
Thank you so much for having me. The book uh, is 24-7 Politics, Cable Television, and the Fragmenting of America from Watergate to Fox News. It is great. You should get it. Uh, if you pop onto the Princeton website, I see right now there's a 30% off uh, your first order coupon if you're a new subscriber. So that's a that's something you could do. Uh, it's a, it really is a fantastic book. It's a great history book. It's great for understanding both um, you know, what the, the last several decades of the United States look like and what the next ones might. So do go pick that up. And as always, my thanks uh, also go to uh, Carolyn Smith, Ross Clark, and Aisha Jarrah, who make the show not just possible, but infinitely better than it would be without them. I'll leave it there for now, and we'll see you back here in two weeks.